Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, how are we doing? Good, yeah. good. How are you? Yeah, can't complain. Sunday, it's, the weather's nice, you know, just, yeah, just easy, easy breezy at the moment. I like uh, I like Kino's little slogan, "Spring Forward." I think right from March into April. So happy happy spring, y'all! We're in April now. Mm-hmm. Yes, hallelujah! <laughs> Long day. I, you know, as much of a as much of a grief daylight savings is for like your sleep schedule. It's just so nice having as well. There's a common phrase in Ireland called the grand stretch in the evenings, and um, that's what we get now with daylight savings. You get that extra couple of hours of brightness so you get that grand stretch in the evenings okay i like that that. yeah it's a very everyone in ireland knows that phrase it's actually it's actually it's been said so much it's kind of like eye rolling when someone says it's like ah someone said that someone said the word the meme phrase um but yeah grand stretch in the evenings yeah Um, i'll make sure i say it whenever i visit ireland (laughs) yeah just um, try to do it in an offensive accent too, Zach. <laughs> um, is it um, is it like sort of like that time after dinner? Is that where it is? Like yeah, know? exactly. It's just just that extra couple of hours in the evening yeah. time um, after dinner. You know, instead of getting sort of dark at you know half five six, it's now stay still bright at half seven eight o'clock. So if you wanted to go out for a walk after dinner and stuff, you know, you yeah. have that option. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's just, yes, that's that sort of longer stretch of brightness after dinner time, basically. Well, it's funny that we're talking about the grand stretch of, uh, what is it? The grand stretch of? Grand stretch in the evening. Grand stretch in the evening. I feel like that's sort of appropriate in Jalla week or Jolly week because. Yeah, it does uh, sound like a title you would hear. Yeah. (laughs) Add an animal and some numbers. Yeah, exactly. Throw an animal in there and you've got a good title. grand stretch in the evening of the 17th bird. Some shit like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah well i suppose the cat's out of the bag no pun intended as well it's probably another jello title cats out of the bag, um, out of the bag. <laughs> yeah so yeah this week is jello jello special uh we're gonna be talking about two probably like two of like the top five probably top three like jello movies ever made uh which is pretty cool um which do we want to get started with? You know, we never read, we never talked about it when we were prepping. Any any preference on where we start? Well, the good thing is I can say both the directors' names, so I'm good <laughs> on that front. Well, um, I'll choose then. I'll choose since I go first. I'll choose where to start with. So, first film we are going to talk about is probably the, it's it is more than likely the film that kicked everything off um, with Jallo about five or six years before it really kicked off. And it is Blood and Black Lace, also titled Six Women for the Murderer, which is a proper, that's a proper Giallo title mm-hmm. right there, uh, by, by Mario Bava from 1964. Just to give you a really brief overview, if you haven't seen it, a masked man with a metal claw glove stalks models at a couple's fashion salon in Rome. Simple as that. <laughs> it's, there's there's no, nothing too convoluted with, with this film. It's very... At the same time, it is quite visually abstract. So I suppose we'll just start off. Um, who who wants to kick it off with something basic? Did you like it? Didn't you like it? We think we've all seen this before. This is all. None of us was our first time on this, were we? No, I don't think so. No, I think for yeah. both of these movies today, um, yeah. Zach, why don't you go first this time? 
Um, okay, so Blood and Black Lace, uh, I did not get a chance to rewatch it. I thought I had considered it. It's just been, if anyone who's on our Patreon will know, I, my hardships this week have not allowed me to actually watch it like I wanted to. But I remember it pretty well. It's a incredibly visually stunning movie. Um, in a lot of ways, I would say this is sort of the psycho for the slasher film in a sense, like that idea that, you know, Halloween was the one that kicked, you know, kicked off the mainstream appeal. Psycho was kind of the first domino of that. There's a lot in blood and black lace that is very, has a lot of jello elements. And then there's a lot that didn't quite carry over to what we, I guess we would think of as the stereotypical jello and Mm -hmm. being early on, that makes sense. You know, it wasn't like Baba was sitting here, saying, okay, what's the tropes? What's the that? He's kind of creating a lot of them as they go. And that is something to really have an appeal with, something that's really interesting from a historical uh, sense. And like I said, as far as they go, probably one of the most beautiful-looking Jallo films you can find. The story is not... I mean, Italian Italian Jallo films aren't exactly known to have great stories. This one's even kind of lower than a lot of them. It's not very interesting. Um, I couldn't tell you much about any of the characters. You're not really there for that. Um, I like the movie. I, I really enjoy it. But no, it's um, you watch it for the visuals. I don't think you watch it for the story at all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I like that that psycho comparison in terms of like the foundations of a genre. Um, that's 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 a good comparison to make. Um, yeah, I totally agree with the story. Um, I, I did get a chance to rewatch it, luckily enough. Um, I didn't really care that much about it the first time I saw it, which is about maybe 18 months ago, maybe pushing two years. It was a good, it was a good time ago. I don't remember exactly when, but it was it was a while ago when I first watched it. And I was like, oh, that's it. And you know, that was, yeah, it looked nice, but I didn't really care too much about it. Thought the story wasn't very there wasn't really much of a story, um, which is still true. Um, but the rewatch allowed me to focus less on why things were happening and more on, you know, what was actually happening from a, from a filmmaking point of view, the visuals, composition, the atmosphere, uh, the costume design and the set design, especially as well, the lighting. It's pretty much a, it is a visual treat. I know there's a phrase that's used when people describe Suspiria called a candy colored nightmare. And I think that can also be used with, with blood and black lace as well. It does obviously use a lot of uh, bright primary colors uh, pretty much throughout but yeah the story isn't great as we said it's not really a it's not really a you know a big deal when it comes to giallo movie we don't tend to watch them for the story like the, the alternative title for this film six women for the murderer like it, it pretty much sums up everything about blood and black lace it's just six women they we we don't find out too much about them we find out little bits here and there but they're they're here to get murdered if, if anything the murderer is the main character which is quite odd you know when it comes to horror slasher giallo whatever like there is no real true main character in blood and black lace but the killer is kind of the closest thing we get to a main character yeah you're, that's that's sort of the point of intrigue in the story right mm, yeah um so the world ranks this as the 2470th best movie of all time it's respectable um people like it it's one ahead of uh that movie monster where charlie's theron put on some some makeup oh. and award. i'm curious um uh, kind of where it ranks among 
Baba on that list in a way because I feel like is it still this is still con- I, I don't think it's considered Baba's best, but I definitely think it was probably in his top five. You know what? That's a great question. The other thing I'll say is we don't get a chance on this podcast to talk about they shoot zombies list at all or or much, but I figured I might as well give they shoot zombies some love since we're watching a horror. Yeah, and movie. I know our next one will be pretty high on that list if I remember correctly. For sure. Yeah, for sure. This one is 168. So okay. still still pretty high. Um, this is ahead of M as a horror film, which is obviously wrong. Um <laughs> But um, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong year. It's 177. There you go. One, two ahead of M. And so, yeah, I think. Uh, it looks like, it looks like, sorry to interrupt. It looks like Blood and Black Lace is his highest ranked on. They shoot pictures. His next really? closest one. Yeah, his next closest one is 2669, and that's Bay of Blood. Oh, See, so I thought Bay of Blood and Black Sunday would have been higher. Yeah. But... Sorry, Black, I, Sun- I, Black yeah. Sunday's a little higher, I think. Oh, oh sorry. Like the, uh, I zombie it. Yes. No, 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 no. Sorry, you're right. He's it is much higher. A thousand and eighty-one. I completely okay. missed that one. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Black Sunday, then Blood and Black Lace, then Bay of Blood in that order. Yeah, that's I, I can I can agree with that. <laughs> that order actually. But all of his are kind of grouped, like but um you know, let's see me go let me go back. So you've got um black sunday which is yeah thousand and then after that it starts with blood and black lace at 2400 but then after that 2600 is bay of blood 2800 is whip in the body 3100 is kill baby kill that's a good one 3200 is black sabbath so like 3300 is danger double so like they're grouped you know like people people watch a lot of his movies um okay so I'm going to talk about one more thing that's not my reaction to the movie because I feel like art, we're all going to be pretty similar in that. Um, but this is probably the best time to talk about sort of roughly the origins of Jalo uh, yeah. films. So um, I hope I don't get this horribly wrong, but I'm just going to speak at, at a broad level because I and that's where my understanding is. <laughs> but for like from the 20s till maybe even modern day, but for sure, like the 20s through the 70s, there was this weekly publication that came out um, and the name in Italian was uh, Giallo Mondadori. So I guess, and, and the reason they used the term yellow was that they literally had like a yellow cover and there was these very pulpy kind of crime novels that came out. So um, that that's, you know, people in Italy would have associated the color yellow with like crime and murder and mystery and all that, like it was very much in the culture. So I, I feel like that's, you know, worth calling out. So when they started calling these movies, um, jolly films or jolly films, that was something where people would have probably resonated with that. You know, I, I, I was trying to think of like an easy equivalent in English, but anyways, I, I think, I think the closest would be like when I was a kid, you go over to the grocery store and there'd be the purple romance novels, the little 10 cent. They were always purple. <laughs> yeah. Romances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like if they started putting out a, a Daniel Steele movie, like nobody would need background on what that was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I think that, you know, we, there's one of the there's discussion on our, on our uh, chat on Reddit around how people just watch this movie for the, you know, for the women and for the murders. Um, 
I don't know if that's totally fair though. Like I, you know, I think that that's there for sure. And maybe that's a reason why some people watch this, but like, you know, Baba's a highly skilled artist, right. And he's a very visual artist. Um, and I think you, I don't, I don't want to say too much. If you just look at other heroes in the genre, let me just say it that way. There's some similar critique of Argento films, right? He probably leans more into the style, but his movies are not big on story either necessarily. Um, if anything, it's films of too much story. Yeah, Argento goes the other way. He has too much story to the yeah. fact where like you should have cut half this shit out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's what made... I know recently, Adam, you saw... Um, the night Evelyn comes out of the grave, right? Or the Red Queen? No, the other one, the Red, the Red Queen. Queen. I'll talk about that. That's what I'm going to talk about for my any other business later. Oh, okay. Well, I don't want to give it away. But I mean, anyways, there's other entries in the genre where I think they focus more on story. Uh, and, and there's some really cool kind of unique takes in the genre. But Baba, this is this is like the origin, right? This is simple. This is like 80s punk rock versus 90s skate punk. You know, by the time they got to 90s skate punk, there was like dueling guitars they were harmonizing over each other and fast drums and vocals they were like harmonizing over each other and it was this kind of crazy experience but in the early 80s it was like a little bit more raw and like it was there was still good music in that but it was just more simple like the genre hadn't been like evolved yet right and i think that that's that's kind of how i feel about blood and black lace like it's it's simple and it's it's well made and like it probably got it did well and it got people excited about the genre and it was it was a new way of looking at kind of crime and murder mysteries. And, and uh, I, I like it for that. I don't know. It's, it's fun. I, I, I like this movie a lot. Yeah. Like it's important. Sorry. No, you go, Adam. You're good. I was just going to say, you know, it's, it's important to remember that, you know, Mario Bava wasn't setting out to make a Giallo film because it didn't right. exist. You know, he was trying to tell a story that happens to be just about some women getting murdered and a very convoluted plot, but he wanted to tell it in a very visually appealing way. And he does that. Absolutely. It's an incredibly well-directed film. It's very well paced. You know, there's no pacing issues, which we'll talk about a little bit later with a different film. Um, But it is, it's, it's very artful, you know, it's very modern. It's very, it, it, it matches the fashion house. It's very fashionable. Yeah, it's very definitely. stylish and it's very modern the way he films this film. You know, when you watch it and you sort of look at it, you think this, you know, this seems like something out from like the late 70s. It doesn't seem like a 1964 movie, especially if you look at other films around that genre or around that time frame. You know, a lot of the non Hollywood films would have been quite raw. You know, we're talking about like Goddard and stuff like that. Or maybe the opposite way, if we look at something like uh, Bergman, it would have been very theatrical based, whereas this, this feels very modern and very stylish. Um, it's almost like if, if Antonioni made a Jallo movie, um, the way some of the camera movements and setups and stuff. So it is a, it's a very, very well-crafted and well-made film. Again, I don't know how much slasher fan, like if you go into this film expecting a slasher movie, I think you might come away disappointed, not at the kills and the killer per se, because the killer itself is get up is, is, is very, is very cool, but maybe you might be put off by its artfulness, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, you know, it's kind of hard to disregard Jally when it, when you talk about slasher, because there is that like natural progression there. Uh, the thing that I kind of, 
I think Slasher did and probably why it lasted, its movement lasted probably longer, I would argue, was because it was like, it's almost like Jally was like, okay, we're making Agatha Christie novels. We need to have right. a compelling mystery. We need to have a twist. Even if none of us are good at knowing how to do that or how to develop that or anything else, but this is what we need. And then, you know, when Slashers came about, it's like, no one really cares. I mean, most of the time there is no mystery to a lot of Slashers. I mean, there's exceptions like Friday the 13th, the first one, but generally you know who the killer is because the mystery isn't the point. And, they, and, I, and I'll agree with Chris. The kills aren't necessarily the point. It is for some for some franchises. You know, we've talked about Friday the 13th on here I don't know how many times. It's a big part of it. It's not the only part of it, but it's a big part. But it's the it's the same thing with Jally. You know, there are going to be certain filmmakers who are much more into how to tell these type of stories very artfully. You know, we're going to be talking about Argento uh, here in a little bit. And Argento was a lot like that. You know, he he didn't want to do it in a simple way, even from like a camera standpoint. And that's what you can really appreciate. And it's kind of sucks to almost put it as this like style, uh, style versus substance idea, because I guess the sense is the style is the substance. You know, you got these filmmakers who just want to make something that looks cool and interesting and experiment a little bit. And, you know, the story is just kind of there in service of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the, the cool thing about the, the um, subgenre in general is just to see how these filmmakers go about it. Because Bob, is, is, as much as he influences Argento, they're very distinct on how they look. Like, you can tell the difference between a Bob and Argento film. Well, if we're talking about the look of the film, I feel like we have to at least draw a little bit of attention onto Ubaldo Trezano. So that's, he's the, the camera operator here, the cinematographer here. And, you know, he, he's a, a great example of somebody, I think, that's kind of behind the scenes. But once you start to look into his filmography, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense where this artistic, kind of artistic capability came from. I'm sure part, a lot of it was obviously Baba as well, but he was the camera operator for Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. Okay. Um, for Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Uh, and then he did actually the... Uh, the Paul Morrissey movies, Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. Oh, okay. That's, and yeah. Deep Red. So there's a connection to a little, little spoiler there. But so he, like, this is a guy who followed around a lot of the greats in Italian cinema and is, is very competent and capable, you know, at, at framing and, and uh, lighting design and a lot of the trademarks in those films that I mentioned, like, the camera work gets brought up quite often, right? So he's obviously got a very strong vision. Um, and this movie, like I, we've kind of talked about it in, in general, but I just want to like hone in or zone in on that for a second, zoom in for a second. Like the the way that these scenes are set up for me, it felt like, like, okay, let's take, for example, the opening sequence with the the way that the, the sign for the hotel kind of fell mm -hmm. off, right? It, that could have been a universal monster movie, right? It wound up yeah, not or something from Hammer or something like that. Hammer, right? Like yeah. it wound up not being that. But I feel like that's why this this movie to me is it sort of transitions between like a lot of that classic horror that people would have seen on TV just on replay, uh, or maybe the ones that they grew up going to the theaters to see. Uh, it, and it sort of transitions into this like new era where you can be a little bit more gory, a little bit more grisly, right? Like a little bit more nasty. Um, and, and I think that's, it's important for that as well. 
blood could be a little less pink. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I mean that's that's my I guess my big point there. I just like I just feel like it, it's for me it's important to think when I think about this movie I think about it as one of those like transition films you know. Uh, and I think that's another reason why people like it so much because those films tend to be shocking when they come out. And then in retrospect, they're like not as shocking. Um, right. Like, so. Yeah. And I, and I mean, that's further you go with horror. That's always kind of going to always be the issue, right? Like, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre isn't as shocking as it was in 74 and things like that. But if it's important and it does other things it you know, it'll still stick around. It'll still be worth talking about. Um, and this is, and that's really what blood and black lace is as much as we can discuss the story. And, and that's kind of where we're at is it almost feels like you have to talk a little broadly about it because you're like, we can't really dissect the story because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No. And you know, it's, it, it's tough to do that. <laughs> I had forgotten who the killer even was. Thank you. It wasn't just me. And I, I know it's been a while <laughs> for me, but I can't remember who it is. Like I was watching, <laughs> when I was rewatching, I was like, was it that person? Like, oh no, shit. She's been murdered, not her. Uh, I, I was, I couldn't really put my finger on it. And then even like the last twist, I was like, oh, I forgot about that too. So it, it will just tell you sort of how, how inconsequential the plot is to a lot right. of this, but it's still, it's still one of those films that you just, you remember images from it. Um, you, there's there's scenes, you know, that are particularly sort of ingrained, like when one of the girls gets her hand and her face put on that sort of burning that that mm. that, that uh, what you call it that furnace. Um, or you know the, the I think my favorite scene in the whole film is that sort of early one where one of the girls is is locked in the antique shop. And there's like the lights flashing and you sort of see the, the killer sort of creep around. And he pops up in the corner and stuff every now and again. She's trying yeah. to escape. Really, really cool scene. Visually stunning and, and really tense. You know, it is it is a genuinely tense scene. Um, you know, and that's that's the kind of scene that you'd see, you know, in a much in a much more modern film and like a 90s film or something, you know, with the flashing lights and stuff like that. You, you wouldn't really associate that with with horror of this era so i think it's 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 an incredibly influential film as we've already said for giallo for slasher for horror in general really um and yeah it's just it, it's, it's kind of it was kind of ahead of its time you know mm. yeah and i mean because i mean i'm trying to think of what was horror in 64 because horror really changes in 68 with neither living dead that changes an incredible amount 64 is kind of trying to sit here and think of what would be coming out in horror wise well, I've, I've googled this here i'll make i'll make your i'll make your life easier and i've googled it and there actually is quite a lot of really interesting ones so we actually get a couple of the roger corman okay uh, the Ma the mask of the red death with it which okay. i think visually you can really lump this in with blood and black lace is a visually stunning horror film um yeah. we also have another one the tomb of lygia that's another Roger Corman, uh, the Gorgon, which is a which is a Hammer film, uh, Quaidan, which I had brought up before, Ani Baba. So oh, yeah, mm -hmm. it seems like outside of the sort of mainstream US, like Hollywood, you're getting actually quite a lot of really interesting horror films. Even like The Last Man on Earth, you know, another another one with Vincent Price. So you get a lot of 
yeah, it's, there's a lot of actually pretty decent films on this list here for 1964 and horror. Uh, and a lot of really well-made ones. One of H.G. Lewis's best movies, The 2000 Maniacs, came out that year as well. I know he's not in the same league as some of these classic directors, but 2000 Maniacs was great. Like, it was a really good movie. It probably, I think it's his best, or one of them anyways. Yeah. It, it's almost like it's setting up for that, um, you know, I, I guess it's kind of setting up the tea, that whole... Uh, golden uh new uh what is it called new hollywood movement where you get these yeah. people just kind of being a little experimental and i mean they're kind of already showing that here uh especially with color like you mentioned uh red death i almost wonder if there was like new camera tech lens that these guys just really wanted to try out mm-hmm. and like okay maybe we can make colors pop better i'm not sure i'm speculating but it almost seems that way with how much they're experimenting with that yeah like it, there's definitely there seems to be a common thread here of films that are sort of have a lot of color um, and put a strong emphasis on on reds and stuff like that as well. Quite on is like that as well. It's a very visually stunning film shot in color. Um, Nani Baba is in black and white saying, oh, straight jacket with Joan Crawford. Have you guys seen that film? I have not. It's a it's a William Castle Um it's good fun. I like William Castle. I'd watch that. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, Joan Crawford's uh, is is very fun in it. I uh, would recommend. Uh, yeah, I, I I could agree. There's there there probably is some experimentation when it comes to um, color shooting, color especially, um, from what I've seen here. Um, there seems to be another. Have you guys seen Castle of Blood? That seems like a might I've be another. I've seen it. It's been a while, but I've seen it. Cool. Yeah, it looks, oh, looks cool. Barbara Steele. This is sorry. This is, since we're just. This is the year for a midnight. I'll take your soul. Have y'all seen that? I haven't. No, that Brazilian no, no, no. horror movie. Oh, it's great. Uh, very. I can't good. add it to my letterbox right now. I have to write it down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good. There's a. Um, it's one of the old DVDs. We were talking about this a few episodes back. It's one of the old DVDs that came in a coffin. Um, wow. They. Uh, I think it was Fantoma. Maybe it doesn't matter. They, there's like a giant coffin and there's four of these uh, these horror movies from uh, Brazil in the 60s. I didn't realize that this was... Oh, is this Coffin Joe? I was about to ask. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, because I was on my list of 1964 horror films, but I never... And, but now the, the poster just said Coffin Joe, but when I look under the poster, it does say at midnight, I'll take your soul. That's so, it. Uh, yeah, interesting. I'll have to look into it. Because I was sitting here, I was like, what else is Brazilian at that point, like in that era? So I was like, okay, that makes sense. That just, makes a big, sense. just a big gap and then Bacarel 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, sorry, fans in Brazil. I'm sure there's a lot of great movies in your history. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, we won't talk about Brazilian films, but there is one I know that gets quite a lot. Limite, or is that, is that Argentinian? No, the city. Um, so one second. Oh, City of God. City of God. City of God. There we go. Yeah, yeah. City of God. Uh, that movie's that's like, great, maybe. But yeah. uh, there's there's one called Limit Limit or Limite or I don't know how to pronounce it. From uh, it's from it's quite old. It's from like the 30s or something. But um, that's like considered like one of the great silent films of like outside of, you know, outside of Hollywood um, and you know Europe and stuff. Uh, I know that's been it's meant to be very surreal. So you you actually might like it, Chris. Um, it's meant to be quite surreal. Sounds um, right now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll send you a link to it once the letterbox is working again. Uh, but anyway, sorry, we should probably get back to Blood and Black Lace. That was a nice detour, though. Um, it, it does kind of back up that maybe um, 
you know, Bava was following not necessarily a trend, but there was a lot of similarly minded filmmakers who were wanting to experiment with making horror films that were a little bit different than the norm. Because uh, Mask of the Red Death can definitely fall into that category as well. That's a very, it's a very visually striking film. Yeah. Especially after the, like, I, this might just be me. I've always thought the 50s was kind of a low point when it comes to horror. Like, you had Hammer, but that was just about to say that. It. <laughs> It was, uh, so it was probably kind of nice for the 60s that that, because I mean, you want to talk, like we've talked about on here before, uh, Night of the Hunter is very visually striking, but yeah. wasn't well regarded at its time. It almost makes you wonder oh. if it would have been more well regarded in the mid 60s than it would in the mid 50s. For sure. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. 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 Possibly. Well, it was, yeah. I think Night, Night of the Hunter was just kind of weird anyway, because, you know, it was coming towards the end of film noir. You could probably say the same thing if it was made 10 years earlier. It could yeah. have been really well regarded. So it was just in a weird gray area where noir was ending and horror wasn't really, you know, wasn't really focused on that kind of stuff. It was more focused on, you know, Dracula and the mummy. And, and the blob. We've talked about the blob on here. Oh, the blob. Of course, the blob. How could <laughs> I forget? How could I forget 40-year-old Steve McQueen playing a 17-year-old? <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't think he was actually for. See, if we were doing the pick thing, I would have picked Carrie for that one, since we could talk about thirty-year-old sissy Spacek playing Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that's that's kind of what there is to say about Blood and Black Lace, right? I'm just trying to think. I can't think of anything else specifically because we can't really get into the plot because. I, I do want to note one mistake that I love in this movie that I know okay. this is the first time I watched it was uh, the bathtub kill. The, one, mm-hmm. the woman is killed in the bathtub and he wants to make it look like a suicide. You yeah. can already see this like line of where it's supposed to be cut. And you can just tell he just like kind of traces it with the knife. I think. It's oh, really? Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, There's I didn't a few mistakes that. in there and it's like that's kind of endearing because you know it was made for nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't catch that. that. I didn't even catch it, so there you go. It was never probably caught in the VHS era, not until there was a Blu-ray upgrade, 4K scan that people were yeah. like... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure when they're making it too, it's like nobody's going to see it. It's fine. <laughs> but to be fair, I didn't see it, so yeah. you know, it's probably, they're probably right for the most part. Great. Well, uh, fun discussion, y'all, on, on Blood and Black Lace. And actually, one of the things we touched on was this kind of transition between eras and Speaking of that, Severin just released uh, a star who's been around, I think, in every era of horror. <laughs> uh, they released the second collection of Christopher Lee films they're putting out oh, nice. called The Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee. This one ranges from 1962. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 1959, actually. Uncle was a vampire until all the way 1989, I believe. Yeah, with a movie called Murder Story. So it ranges, you know, what is that? 60 to 80, this is basically 30 years, right? And yeah. that's only probably a third of Christopher Lee's career. <laughs> I feel yeah. like that guy was, he's just, he's been in literally everything. Um, but this one has some great movies in it. So there's um, Uncle Was a Vampire, Secret of the Red Orchid, Dark Places, Dracula and Son, uh, Murder Story, and then this just typical you know, Severin style. There's a lot of great special features. Um, sometimes they even have bonus films. I think at least one of the discs has a bonus film. So they're just, yeah, like, you know, 
Severin is one of these companies that I, I actually kind of, I have this sickness <laughs> maybe where I try to go complete on some labels. I, I, I don't do that for Severin. Um, their, their range of stuff they put out is kind of all over the place. And some of it, I don't really enjoy that much, but I am definitely complete on their box sets. And I think I'll always be that way going forward. I just, not only are they good investments because they go crazy on the secondhand market um, when they we go out of print, but honestly, they're just brilliant box sets. Like I really want to support them doing that more. Like the first Christopher Lee box set was amazing. They went and found some old TV uh, shows that he had done uh, and, and put them out on disc. I'm sure that something that would have never seen the light of day otherwise. And some of these movies are, are great um, and, and hard to find. And so, but yeah, just kudos to them. They're out of the blue uh, shipped. So I just got that um, shipped uh, yesterday, actually. So I'll be getting their copy of out of the blue, another film that a lot of people said would never get a disc release, a physical release because of rights issues and stuff. And they, they, I don't know how they did it. Maybe it's on the disc and maybe I'll have to find out, but they took the time to, you know, get with the rights holders and get Dennis Hopper involved and, and, and get it out in the market. Um, and, um, so that, and then this, this second Christopher Lee comes out in June, I believe. So that'll be a little bit longer, but just very impressed with those folks. And, uh, and then I didn't go crazy. This is, I'm sure y'all will talk about this a little bit, but like, this was like the last two weeks of sales. I feel like, like there was, everything had a sale. Um, and I was, I, I'm, I'll report that I was pretty restrained. I was proud of myself. I didn't dive into the indicator sale at all because I already have a lot of the box sets that are in print from them. Um, and uh, uh, did have not done the Kino one. Um, the the Arrow one Syndrome, right around the corner. The what? The Arrow one is going to be right around the corner. Their Easter sale they normally do. So yeah. the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely get some of that um get in on that but uh, vinegar syndrome didn't go crazy so yeah anyways i i was i kind of sat this one out a little bit and tried to lick the wounds from um an expensive february and and march already so what about y'all um well i i didn't sit out of the indicator sale <laughs> i did i was good i only bought one um i didn't buy any of their like single releases because the only ones I really want at the moment are their two Mexican movies, but obviously they weren't part of the sale because they're still so new. So I might wait till the next sale to pick those up. Um, but I did pick up a box set as one of the few box sets they had in print that I didn't have. So I got this uh, John Ford set, the John oh, Ford at Columbia. Yeah. Uh, very nice looking set. Um, films, I had heard of one of them, The Whole Town's Talking. Um, I heard <laughs> of that one because it has uh, Edward G. Robinson in it. And I love Edward G. Robinson. Uh, the other three are Long Grey Line, Gideon's Day, and The Last Hurrah. Um, this will tell you all you need to know about me and Indicator box sets. I don't care about John Ford. I don't particularly like his movies. I've never heard of any of these movies, but I still bought this. That's all you need to know the about Indicator The mark of a true collector. Sets. I've never that's heard of need- but that's pretty cool. I don't care about John Ford all that much. I'm not particularly affiliated with any of his movies. I've never heard of any of these, but the box set looked nice, so I bought it. Yeah, I'm just curious. How do you feel about uh, Searchers and My Darling Clementine and stuff like that? Uh, I've never seen My Darling. I haven't actually seen a ton of John Ford. Let me just pull up his filmography. Um, My Darling Clementine is awesome. I know you asked Adam. 
But that movie caught me off guard. It's so good. I have heard that that one is good. Um, seen Stagecoach. I like that one. That was that was pretty good. Um, it was kind of like a Hitchcock movie, but in a western. Um, Searchers. I was kind of disappointed by Searchers, maybe because it's so high. It was. I watched it when I was going through trying to get through the sight and sound top two fifty, and it's like really high. It's in like the top ten or top twenty. So I was kind of disappointed by it. You know, I thought it was good and it looked nice, but Jesus, it's racist. Yeah, I think uh, AFI has it as their top Western, if I remember correctly. Probably. They probably yeah, do. I think, I Just going by is. its reputation, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, obviously, I hate The Quiet Man. Um, I don't really care for that one either. Yeah, I, I, I hate that film. Um, I don't think I've seen any more. I'm just looking through his filmography here. I'm pretty sure those are the only ones I've seen. I would say um, watch My Darling Clementine. Like, yeah, I have. I, I would say if you can, those. I think you will like that one. Yeah, I think I can't I will. speak for any on that box set. I've never watched any of them. Uh, yeah, like none of them seem like they're like westerns. Um, anyway, from like they all look to be like set in like the modern day. I think one of them's a war film. Um, so I don't think any of them are westerns. Which, you know, I I don't not like westerns, but I'm not like a huge western guy, as you guys know. Anyway, um, but yeah, Stagecoach would be my favorite out of three I've seen. Um, but yeah, I'll try and get to um, I'll try and get to my darn Clementine at some point. If it helps. I have heard that's good. If it helps, it's just like the first telling of the uh, Tombstone story. Never seen Tombstone. You know, like the Wyatts and the OK Corral. Yeah. Okay. okay Corral. I'll, I'll I'll put this to you this way. Do you guys know who Ku Cullen is? No. So why would I know who your American old heroes are? <laughs> Wait, no, okay, fair. But Tombstone was like a huge movie with like uh, Kevin Costner and all them. I reckon, I know the poster. I know the poster where the guys are walking down the dusty. I know the poster for Tombstone. They're all wearing yeah. their black. Yeah, but I have no idea what the Tombstone story is. I, didn't even I, I guess that's story. interesting because I always thought it would be like Ned Kelly. Like people in America know who Ned Kelly is from Australia. Like he was a big outlaw. I guess they call him what? I don't want to say Bushwhacker. I don't know if that, they have a different name than outlaw, but. Like, I thought maybe it would be like that, but I guess it's not. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely seen this poster for Tombstone. Yeah. yeah but uh, Also, no. watch Tombstone. <laughs> it's a good... It's a I, movie. The, the name Wyatt Earp sounds familiar, but I have no idea if he was a good guy, a bad guy. I have no idea what his story was. So, no, okay. Not. That's interesting. Good <laughs> to get that perspective. From yeah, yeah, it's cool. Great Sam Elliott role, too. Anyways, okay. What's... Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, what we'll music? Um, so I think I mentioned the last one. I, I want to say I did. I, I'm trying. I'm blanking if I re, if I mentioned that I was getting that Godfather set, that 50th anniversary one. This thing is ginormous. I have to hold it like back here. Oh shit! But, okay, it's bigger. Than yeah, I it's great set. I absolutely love it. The only thing I don't like about it is I wish companies would stop doing this stupid cardboard sleeves. Like this is an exp- or you have to pull it out like sideways and. Pray to God it doesn't scratch against the cardboard. Oh. I wish they'd stop doing that, but that's about my only real issue with it. Um, beyond, it's great set. I really recommend it. I got it for lower than I think it's selling right now. I think it was like one hundred six, and I would say it's worth that. I don't know if I'd pay one forty for it, which I think is what Amazon is selling for it now. Jeez. Um, but you know, for a hundred dollars, I was like, good three movies with great transfers i've went ahead and looked through the transfers they look great sound i wish it was 
7.1 audio, but I'll deal. It still sounds great. Um, lots of special features. They have three cuts of Godfather 3 because because they cannot figure out how to make that movie good. They're still trying. <laughs> um, but I, I love the set. If you can find it cheap, I'm sure it'll go down in price again. I'd recommend it for that price. Uh, beyond that, the only other thing I have coming in is um, because um, taking my girlfriend towards, I guess it's the middle of the month, we're going to go see the new Fantastic Beast 3 because I got to go buy the tickets pre-ordered for that. We're re-watching the Harry Potter movies. So I actually went ahead and bought like the Steelbook collection. And this is kind of one of those things of why uh, I'm really big in telling people to go region free. So that set is sold out through Best Buy. You can't get it anymore unless you want to pay $350 for it. Oh, wow. Or you can order it from France for $80. Oh, wow. And it's the same thing. It's just the outside packaging is in French. And I'm like, you know what? To save $300, I think I can deal with some French. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's crazy that they can, that, that's how different it is. Best Buy sells out and it's, it, people will pay high dollar for it. And it's like, yeah, I, what is this? F FNAC? I don't know if that's how you're actually supposed to say it. FNAC. That was the company that sold it for like $80. Wow. Are you talking about the one where it's like, um, it, it's sort of like this, the steel books slide into individual mm -hmm. slots. It is, yep. like a, big, yeah. a big black box, is it? I'm just looking yeah, a big there. black box, yep. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, yeah, it's 160 pounds to order it from the Warner Brothers UK store. It's sold out on the Irish websites I've checked. So, yeah, you probably got a good deal. Sounds like you Yeah, and I, I was like, it, it's just crazy to me to look at that. And I was like, it's weird. I was like, I, it makes me glad I'm region free because that almost pays for itself as many years as I've done it. But, right. yeah. I'll that's me justifying that expensive cost. So there you go. And I didn't order anything during the sale because I spent enough money. Right. <laughs> and I ordered from the last keynote sale and I was like, I think I'm good for a little while. All right. And uh, welcome back. We're now going to be talking about our second feature film. This was picked by Chris himself. We're going to be talking about Dario Argento's uh, Deep Red. I'm not going to say the other title, but it is about a jazz pianist and a wisecracking journalist are pulled into a complex web of mystery after the former witnesses the brutal murder of a psychic. And before we get started, I just really want to put this funny thing that I think is hilarious about the poster. The is pretty iconic. It's got the hanging doll and it's got the mummified corpse. But I love that it says uh, something. Uh, let me get it. When was the last time you were really scared? Psycho, The Exorcist, Jaws. Now there's Deep Red. And I think that's great because Jaws came out the same exact year. So what is that really saying? When was the last time you were scared? Three months ago? <laughs> <laughs> like, last week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Adam, I know you had you actually watched, you've seen both the English and the Italian, right? Yeah, I watched both cuts. So similar, I actually probably watched Deep Red around the same time I first watched Blood and Black Lace and I was kind of getting into Giotto. Um, and I watched the English cut that time and I didn't care about the movie all that much. I'd seen Bird of the Crystal Plumage like within a few days prior. Um, I, was really, I was really going on like a run that week um, and I preferred Bird of the Crystal Plumage. I watched the Italian version this time because I had read that it does make a bit more sense. They cut and, you know, they did cut some stuff out of the English version 
they cut a bit more of the violence out of the English version as well as some of the scenes where David Hemmings and Darian Nicolodi's character, you know, had a bit more sort of comedic moments together, a bit more jokes and a bit more playfulness. And those were kind of cut out of the English version as well. Um, so I decided to watch the Italian version this time around. Um, I still don't really get what happens in some parts of the movie. I didn't, I, I was hoping it would open up more doors, um, especially that whole subplot with the villa. I still don't really get what the whole point of that was. Um, I was hoping this would open, you know, give me more answers to that. It didn't. <laughs> um, I still don't like it as much as Bird of Crystal Plumage, which I do need to rewatch. I, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it with this. Um, and I think Blood and Black Lace have probably jumped above Deep Red, but like Blood and Black Lace, I've gained a much better appreciation for it the second time around than I did the first time. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of hold it up there for now. What about you, Chris? Well, so this movie is very highly regarded. So it's in the top 1,000 on They Shoot Pictures at 983. Nice. That's good. Um, right next one down or next one up i guess closer to closer to number one is that film giant from the 50s um it's, it's the in that nicholas ray isn't it uh it's actually george stevens let's see if nicholas oh. ray's uh maybe oh, he's no, I, I think i'm mixing up it's because the guy who was in rebel who's the guy the guy who's in rebel without cost uh james dean yeah i think he's in giant maybe yeah. that's why i've mixed it up yeah 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 um then on they shoot zombies list getting to talk about this list for the second time uh is is exciting this film is all the way up at 48 very respectful i I forgot that's a little bit lower than i was actually assuming Uh, i was gonna i was gonna think top 30 um yeah i guess suspiria is his highest i would would imagine yeah i have to believe that's true even though Suspiria is not my favorite, but I assume it's just just for context. Um, yeah. I forgot where Blood and Black Lace was on the zombies one. Was that above or below? 177. Yeah. Okay. Wait, 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 wait below. Okay. Thank you. Um, but I was trying to think of, you know, this movie is like it's interesting, right? Because it was shot in huh, I just lost the year, 1975. Mm-hmm. and like there was a lot of some of the the campiness in this movie i i, I don't want to give away i guess I, I won't talk about the ending but some of the way certain scenes were shot and some of the way that that uh yeah the campiness was handled in this movie it feels like an 80s film right so it's kind of like I, I think like especially ah so hard not to talk about the last scene when to make it feels like tenebrae like tenebrae is definitely like that's like they don't awful. feel that far apart, but they were made a pretty decent amount of time apart. Yeah, yeah. And Tenebrae is very wild and weird. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be my favorite film from him. But, um, anyways, I yeah, like I think Deep Red for me is like uh, I, I don't really quite get why it's the forty eight best horror movie of all time, and yeah. in the top one thousand of best films of all time, like. There's so much buzz around the movie. Like the Goblin soundtrack was a massive seller, right? It's a cool use of jazz. Um, uh, Just say it. I like it, Chris. Just say it. You can say it. 
no, I, no, I'm not, I'm not shy to say that. I, I just, I was watching it this time, trying to figure out like what all the hype was about. That was kind of my lens to like, I was on my rewatch this time and it didn't really resonate with me uh, the way that, that I kind of wanted it to. I think this is going to be a middle of the road Argento film for me. Like it has some cool styling. Um, it's very unique. I like the music to it, even though at times it feels a bit random. Um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't love it, I guess. What about you, Zach? I'll uh, try to put a little insight in here. I'm, this isn't my favorite Argento. That's still opera because I think the plot in opera is better. I think it's a lot more streamlined. Uh, but I do like this film a lot. And I think why so many people are attracted to it, I'll at least give my perspective and see if that maybe helps. This was the first Jallo film I ever saw. Like I, I would have to have been in high school um, the first time I saw it and it almost feels like it opens up this weird world for you. And I think for a lot of people, it is their first one. Like, you know, I don't know if Sergio Martino or M Mario Bava are ever going to be the best pure introductions to what Jallo can be, but deep red is like, it's got this overly convoluted plot. It's got this really unique camera work from Argento, which I think can easily be taken for granted now because we've seen it for, from him for 30 40 years now yeah but yeah it, it's it's incredibly inventive um and you know as far as mysteries go it's probably one of the stronger ones in Jallo, which is says a lot about the genre and how it makes mysteries but it's mostly coherent like i can tell you what happens i can tell you who the killer is and i can tell you the first time when they first reveal the killer i'm not going to get into spoilers just in case because i was gonna say did you look out did you look out for it I looked at yeah, it. Yeah, I did. I was interested. And, <laughs> and then the whole time, like when they finally give the first reveal, we'll say, I was like, that doesn't make sense. And I was like, and I was just, I remember thinking that. And when I forgot about it years later, when I rewatched, I was like, this still doesn't make sense. And I'm like, oh, because I'm actually paying attention. I don't <laughs> like, so good. It wasn't just the Dario Argento's like, who cares that this doesn't make sense? It's a Jallo film. Um, there is something there and it's not great but it makes it a little bit more fun so I think it's more accessible if that makes sense like it's just a more accessible Jallo film like it's not going to be Martino or Baba it's going to be or Gento was ever I would say most people's introduction to the subgenre yeah uh, yeah Argento uh, in general it was definitely mine Trying to remember if it was Suspiria or Opera. I think Opera might have some of my favorite visuals too, in terms of horror. Like the, the not to be a man gets to you. Yeah, not to be a curmudgeon, but Suspiria technically isn't a genre. Oh, here we go. That's all. Not this is how we're going to spend two hours on the podcast. <laughs> determining what the fine line of what is and isn't Jalo. <laughs> the purist would say a killer. Yeah, the purist would say the Suspiria is not a Jalo movie. But I was still follow up. Yeah, I mean, when I, when somebody says, "What is uh, Suspiria?" If I say it's a witch movie, I don't think that properly prepares people for what it is. But if I say it's a Jallo film, they'd be like, "Okay, I get, I get what you're going for." Supernatural horror film. Yeah, like, you know, it's <laughs> it's just we're not here talking about that overrated movie anyway. So, oh, I'm not the only one who isn't in love with Suspiria. That's cool. Ah, oh, super overrated. That that <laughs> film boring as fuck. Looks so good, and that's the thing that kills me. Like. I told somebody one time, and I won't get off topic too much. I was like, if I could be in a room with literally no distractions, I would probably fall in love with Suspiria. But the littlest thing 
get distracts me and I just it, I fall out of it. Like I'm, <laughs> and it, it feels like it takes me forever to get back into it. Like I'll hear my cat do something. I'm like, oh yeah, it's like it breaks this illusion <laughs> for Suspiria. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's like I just have to be in like this soundproof room with no distractions, and I will probably <laughs> love the movie to death. There was, um, I guess, one of the things that you said just now, uh, that this was like a well-constructed mystery. So he teamed up with this guy named Bernardino Zapponi. Uh, and I, and I, had a, I did a double take when I saw that name. Because he did a lot of movies with Fellini. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a novelist and he wrote, uh, he was a writer on Satyricon, Clowns, Roma. Casanova and City of Women, at least, if not, if not a few more, maybe. Um, and all of the there's there's a common thread in all of those where uh, it, it's that period in Fellini's career where he kind of went into like really leaned into the surrealism and started to tell more convoluted stories. Um, uh, I, I that's my favorite period of Fellini's career, but uh, it's very far cry from the neorealism kind of roots. Um, and I think, I don't know how that plays into this uh, necessarily, but it, it's interesting. Like it, when I saw that name, I, I'm, I'm kind of rethinking about this movie now from the perspective of being like co-written by a novelist. Because um, I could kind of see that making sense a little bit. Like it does take, it does try to make the story like grand, right? And like with the, with the late motif of the, the music that, that kind of runs through. Yeah, I think the story itself is is more novelistic. You know, I think if this was written as a novel, it would probably come across, I'm talking purely story-wise, the story would probably come across easier to follow, you know, if it wasn't in a novel form. Right. Um, so I, I guess that kind of makes a bit more sense now that you, now that you mentioned this guy. Um, yeah, it's... But in terms of this film... Obviously, look, this film is basically Bird of the Crystal Plumage Part Two. It's just mm. it's the same, it's the same idea. Dude witnesses a murder, can't quite shake that something, he's missing something, and he tries to figure that out all while the killer is hunting them down. It's the same film, but the same, same the exact same sort of um structure, and even includes a mid-film sojourn to a random house that doesn't actually really matter when it comes to it. <laughs> Um, and it probably you know, would in a novel like you, you were kind of mentioning like the villa yeah. would be a cool red herring to go into a different setting but it feels weird in the movie it does it's and it's the, the same thing happens in in bird crystal plumage when he goes out to that like big country house you mm-hmm. know where the artist lives it, it doesn't actually matter for like the whole film the whole plot if, if you take that whole sequence out it doesn't change anything that we've learned until now. If anything, the villa was just a means to get Mark to the school where, you know, the killer is sort of hanging out um, for some reason. I'm not going to, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to try and explain, um, you know, the ins and outs of, of plot semantics uh, when it comes to deep red. Oh, aside of, aside from the horror stuff and the, the plot and everything like that, there's one, there's one aspect of, of Deep Red that's super interesting and super kind of unexpected. Um, and that's the way that Argento sort of talks about gender politics and mm. homosexuality. You know, 
there are two aspects of the film that you wouldn't really expect to see. Again, they don't add a ton, you know, to the overall plot. You can, again, easily strip them all out and it doesn't really change anything. So, you know, by having that, you know, specific um, want to include these scenes, I think is, is very interesting. The, the character that uh, Dario Nicol- Nicolodi plays like she essentially is always like just ahead of the game. Like she's completely, you know, she's, she's clearly much more intelligent than David Hemming's character, Mark, you know, you know, she's a journalist. She has intuition. She follows clues. You know, she's, she's clearly you know, the, the sort of more intelligent than two, but then he has that, he has that weird little tiff where he's like, you know, remember that part where he's like giving out about uh, empowered women mm-hmm. Um it's just a really weird, like a really weird scene, you know, to include in your horror movie. Again, you take it out and, and it doesn't change the context of anything. So, and the fact that that's, that was Argento's wife as well. Um, <laughs> you know, you feel like he's trying to empower her or something, you know, by, by including that scene where she talks about this, like he's wanting his wife to, you know, be a strong, independent woman. Um, and then obviously you have, you have Mark's friend who is a, who's, who's gay um but it's never really shown like obviously the character himself is a bit of an alcoholic and a bit of a sad sack but like the actual homosexuality aspect is never shown in a disparaging light really at all obviously he he grapples with that you know his boyfriend i suppose maybe is feminized quite a bit but you know that's just you know some people you know some gay people are just like that there's you know that's just maybe who he is you know it's not completely out of you know, it's not completely out of line for Argento to film maybe a gay man and, you know, maybe a bit more feminine because I'm sure there, there is plenty of gay men who are a bit more feminine. Um, so, yeah, I don't think any of the homosexuality stuff is, is disparaging or insulting at all to that, to that, um, you know, to that community, which is, you know, it's, it's refreshing to see in a 70s horror film. Um, I don't know too much about, you know, Italian society, you know, in terms of how liberal they were or anything like that, but you know, if this film's anything to go by with its sort of use of, you know, empowered women, um, and obviously, you know, it's it's depiction of homosexuality, you know, my assumption would be that it was quite liberal or maybe Argento was pushing the envelope. I'm not really too sure, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting part of the film that's sort of completely aside from the, the murders and the mysteries. And I think that's what kind of, helps deep red as it does feel like that part of that's just world building like it's building this yeah. little i don't know if you want to call a city block that you know where all this mystery is sort of taking place but stuff like that really helps like see and that's kind of the big difference between here and blood and black lace as much as both of them have this sort of style to them we can actually talk about the characters and the characterization and the story and <laughs> there's something there's meat there to grab onto even if it's not like super deep and it's not a lot to grab onto it's something and i think that is part of what set argento why he was a big part of the jally movement was just because he could at least recognize that stuff was needed for something <laughs> something yeah you do. feel like audiences could have a, the audiences would have a lot more fun with you know this or bird of crystal plumage than they would with blood and black like general audiences i'm talking about you know, just general cinema goers, they would find something like this more entertaining than, than Blood and Black Lace because obviously Blood and Black Lace puts all its emphasis on the craft and the artfulness, whereas 
not to say that Deep Red isn't artful. There's a lot of excellent, excellent filmmaking here. Um, but it also has deep characters. It has a very over, over rich plot. Um, over rich plot is the best way to put it. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on. There's a lot, as you said, Zach, there's a lot of meat on the bone for an audience to chew on. And, and obviously the kills are, are, are super intense as well. Um, especially the puppet's the great. That, I love that puppet. The puppet. The yeah. puppet is insane. That's just... Argento must have been on drugs. <laughs> must have been. There is, no, there is no other logical explanation. Argento was on drugs um, for, for that, for whenever he, made, he decided to make that puppet scene um but then there's also that uh scene that rick rosenthal kind of used then in halloween too with the the author of that weird book when mm-hmm. the killer goes you know there's the same that's you know that you no know, that kill from halloween too with the yeah with the, with the really hot bath you know yes yes you're right yep that happens in in deep red as well uh pretty much the exact same the exact same murder literally you know the woman sort of being drowned in the extremely hot bath and you know you see her face kind of melting off a little bit uh, with the heat so um obviously deep red was is just as influential to slasher and horror as blood and black lace was uh due to the fact that you know they literally <laughs> halloween 2 literally took one of their murders <laughs> entirely and, and reused it which, uh, speaking of influences, uh, Adam, you brought this up to us while you're watching. You're the music guy here. Yeah, so I want to hear your. I want to hear this, so, this music uh, stuff. You know, I was just. I really like the main theme music of Deep Red. I was like, this, this, this is, is really groovy. It really is really nice. So afterwards, I I got on my computer, and I was like looking up the tabs, you know, so I could learn to play it on guitar because it was really cool, and I was playing it. And I, I made a couple of mistakes. And then next thing I knew, I was playing Street Spirit by Radiohead. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, this is Street Spirit. What have Radiohead done? <laughs> you know? um, and honestly, I wouldn't like, you know, obviously, that, aside from their literal copyright um, issues where, you know, with, with, um, with Creep, where they were actually brought to court. There, there is a lot of moments in Radiohead's music where, you know, they wear their influences on their sleeve, um, especially their jazz influences and stuff at some points. Um, but like, I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if, if this score did influence them when, when writing that chord progression for, for Street Spirit. Um, and, you know, because obviously we would assume that Tom York is aware of Jallo and Argento movies because obviously he did the score for the remake of Suspiria. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. So you know, I it would be it'd be very surprising if you know he had never seen an Argento movie before. You know, <laughs> so um, I'm gonna love that defense if it ever comes out. He's like, I've never heard of Argento. Tom, <laughs> so look, Tom, if you're listening, I love you and you're a friend of the podcast. But just you can admit, you can admit it. We know, we know it's okay. We know uh, <laughs> it's a banger score. We understand, but uh, it is, yeah. No, and I think we we kind of I, I didn't get to say this earlier when we were talking about Blood and Black Lace, just in terms of like you you mentioned that you know you can you can tell a film is an Argento film by the way you're looking at it and stuff. You can also tell the film is an Argento film without looking at it, just by listening to it. 
Yeah, because you'll hear his goblin, goblin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, goblin have that. Um, you know, they're they're very, very iconic sort of prog rock sound. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, actually. Um, was Argento ever in Goblin? Because wasn't there an Argento film where the score was done by Dario Argento and the Goblins? Is that Dawn of the Dead? Well, yeah, they have a, one of the cuts of Dawn of the Dead uses the Goblin soundtrack that they made for Italy. I don't know if I had to look and see if he was involved in that. Though. But I'm pretty sure it's 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 I'm pretty sure it's actually credited as Dario Argento and the Goblins. So I just always wondered if he was like in Goblin and then he left when he went into filmmaking, but like still commissioned them to make music for him. Let's see. I'm, I'm looking it up to see if I can figure it out. Cause usually they'll give you past band members. So they just I put an associated act, uh, Dario Argento. And I'm like, that's true. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe I'm misremembering. I could, I could also be very wrong. Maybe. I'm well, I mean, he did edit Dawn of the, that version of dawn of the dead too it was yeah. his edit so where he took out all the character development and said you don't need all that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting he went from Ennio morricone on bird of crystal plumage and then just a few years later he got you know this this in the goblin but the morricone scores in uh, plumage is also pretty jazzy and pretty cool uh he seemed to just really like jazz i guess which and and then maybe as you said he got more a little more into prog rock as the movies went on. But and apparently um, they were called Cherry Five before Deep Red. Yeah, I'm not seeing any. I I think I might have I I might have just made that up. I, I was curious because I mean I wouldn't doubt he has like some knowledge of you know music because I mean he obviously cares a lot about it. So I, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't have doubted it. I just couldn't. I didn't, wasn't sure. I, I honestly think I made it up because I've even just Googled Dario Argento and the Goblins and nothing really comes up except for like the main Goblin page. So maybe I made it up. Maybe it was just a part of a dream or something. Um, there a we go. Candy colored nightmare. A candy colored nightmare I had, exactly. That is bizarre. That's going to annoy me. It's going to annoy the crap out of me. I'm, next, you'll see on the website that um, Adam has went on a Dario Argento binge. Just to find, just, I don't have to watch the opening credits. It's great. It's easy. <laughs> Immediately cuts it off. Next one. I'm certain it's in the version of whatever version that Shudder has of Dawn of the Dead. I I'm, will. I'm, I'm certain. If I get some time today, I will pull my Dawn of the Dead out and I will check for you. Oh, well, yeah. Have no, to. There's I'm a CD in that case. I'm logging into Shudder. Getting into the, the serious issues here. Yeah. <laughs> Continue talking about the other things while I while I figure this out. Um, yeah, I don't really have too much else to say, to be honest. I think that, you know, this one to me has that vibe where a lot of 80s slasher films where, like, as you meet this creepy family, you start to realize a little bit more about what happened with the with the murder, why it happened. Yeah, it's a common kind of trope in, in a lot of 80s movies. And uh, I think this one certainly, you know, is, I don't know if it's the earliest example of that. I mean, I guess Psycho, you could argue, is a pretty messed up family. That's not really... Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's more... I'm more thinking about kind of like, you know, there's this idea that you do like a flashback to a family and you learn about something that's important to them, like the future story. 
that's a very common thing in a lot of slasher movies. And and this one, I feel like is maybe the earliest I remember that specific kind of like structure. Yeah, and I actually really, I really like how they did it during the credits. I really like how they did that. And it's going to sound bad, you know, as a film lover, um, but I was like, I've never listened, I've never watched a film with a commentary on. And I said, okay, well, look, I've seen Deep Red. I know what it's about. I'm going to watch this with the commentary on. And I got it. I got about five minutes into the film and I was like, I wish this dude would shut the fuck up so I can watch the movie. Um, <laughs> so I turned it off, but he made a really good point during that, during the opening credits um, when the music kind of fades out and it switches into that lullaby, weird sort of lullaby and it shows the flashback and then the, the normal theme fades back in. It's like a psychic vision, the way it sort of, co- it sort of fades in and it happens to you and then it fades out again. It is like one of the visions that, um, that the you know that the psychic you know that gets murdered is like one of the ones that she has so um in the five minutes of commentary that i watched um that was a a really interesting tidbit that i got from it um and i probably would have got more if i managed to sit through it see i didn't realize that when you listen to commentaries you don't get to hear like what's going on in the movie they're all different um yeah some you can some you can't because I was watching it, and I'm like, okay, like I still want to hear the dialogue, dude. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if it's because Italians dub so much that they just maybe. it would be too hard to do it on the track. This was the Italian version that he would have been talking over rather than the English one. Um, so that's certainly possible. If you ever want to dip your toe back into commentary water, sometimes I put the English subtitles on so I can at least kind of follow the story a little bit. Um there's yeah. a, not as quite as exciting, but there's a little trick for you. See, I think I would have to do it with a film that like I know it, I know it inside and out. So like with Deep Red, it's been a year or so since I've seen it. So I did actually you... want to watch it. Now I found it. Sorry, I'm sorry to overcut myself. I have Dawn of the Dead running beside me. Original soundtrack, The Goblins with Dario Argento. Okay, so, I, I just was going to tell you, I have looked through the entire <laughs> rock set and I could not find anything. I'm literally looking at it, right? As I had it, I, I had it playing on mute beside me on a different tab. The Goblins. So it is not Goblin. It's The Goblins with Dario Argento. So I'm just going to screenshot this so you guys don't think I'm crazy. You can link it in the description. And I, I, I will put it, in, I'll put it in. The, I'll put it in our Discord for you to see as well. Anyway, <laughs> sorry to get back to what I was talking about. I would need to watch I would need to watch a film I've seen like a bunch of times. Like I could do it with like Vertigo or something or Night of the Hunter or Halloween or Blade Runner. Listen to the Halloween one. It's It has uh, John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis. And okay. she's scared to death of horror movies, and she has oh, to really? watch it. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't that's, like horror movies. So it, it's they they rip off each other really well. It's an enjoyable commentary. Yeah, see, I could watch a commentary with those films because I've seen them so many times. I know everything that happens. Whereas with Deep Red, it was only my second time seeing it. I had kind of forgotten bits and pieces here and there. I did actually want to rewatch the movie, you know, rather than just listen to some Danish dude tell me all about it. <laughs> See <laughs> how great the movie is yeah and it is interesting because there, there's really like two really main types of commentaries if you really i'm gonna say three there's usually the director with a couple cast members who are talking about it then you have the historical guys who will come in and they'll just give the history of it and then you'll get random ones on some of them which are just the crew you'll have like cinematographer you'll have the sound guy you'll have the stunt guy and they'll just be talking about like the technicals and stuff so it just really 
it really depends on what you're looking for. And then you'll get these movies that have like all all of them. They'll have eight different tracks, and you can just yeah. See, like I definitely like the scholar ones would appeal to me more, especially after reading the Truffaut Hitchcock book, mm-hmm. where like Truffaut tries to get like really intellectual answers out of Hitchcock, and Hitchcock's like, oh, we just did this because you know it was cheap and easy. It's that, so great. <laughs> then you'll love just, Carpenters. That's pretty much his entire. It's just like. For fuck's sake, Hitchcock, you know, people want to put you on this intellectual <laughs> pedestal and you're just like, no, I didn't mean any of this. <laughs> Especially when it comes to like straight. I remember like reading The Strangers on a Train part and I was flabbergasted when he was like, I didn't really like Harley Granger in the lead role. And I'm like, but like, that's what adds the whole homosexual subtext to this that actually makes Hitchcock it really like interesting. That every, now, every movie I read, he's like, uh, Jimmy Stewart was bad for this movie, so I never rehired him. She wasn't good. And I'm like, we're talking about Vertigo. Except, ex- except, except he seems to always think that like Cary Grant probably would have been good in this. If you yeah. brought that up a few times, like I, Cary Grant probably would have been good in this, except for Notorious, where he was like, I probably wouldn't have cast Cary Grant in this again. <laughs> he has to specify, like, not this one. Yeah. Funny. Cary Grant, yes or no? No on this, yes on this. <laughs> All the ones that Cary Grant was in. He didn't want him. And all the ones he wasn't in, he was like, yeah, I probably could have had Cary Grant in here. <laughs> like, if I read an interview that said he didn't think Anthony Perkins was good as Norman Bates, I wouldn't even be shocked. I'd be like, oh, okay. That doesn't yeah. sound right. <laughs> yeah, you like know, <laughs> I, I, I wanted someone more masculine. <laughs> you know, I, I genuinely... I, yeah, Cary Grant would have been great in this. But I, needed, <laughs> I, needed a, I needed a Vince Vaughn type uh, for this movie. Uh, Vince Vaughn type would have been better. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yo, uh, Dario Argento is still directing. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, Dark Glasses comes out. I want to see it. I'm hopeful. Like, please. I don't think I've seen any of his movies that were weren't made in the 80s onwards. I think Tenebrae is like the most recent one I've seen. That is... he, he has a rough output. Yeah, I, <laughs> I assumed as much. Didn't he direct his daughter in a sex scene? Yeah, Dracula 2000. Is it three, two, 2000, yeah. It's or 3D. Sick. It's Dracula 3D. I'm sorry. That There's so many bad. that came out in the night. But yeah, <laughs> he he filmed Asia. Okay. And I'm not gonna watch that one. Cool. Yeah, I'm not gonna watch that one. I probably won't watch any of them. <laughs> Arrow don't put out. I don't trust the rest. He has a movie called Jallo, which is completely awful that he made in the 2000s. Sounds was it just like uh like it's just he's trying to bring back a Jallo? Yeah, and I mean, he's doing that with job. dark glasses, but at least dark glasses looks okay. I hope it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, Argento is kind of the last leg in that era. Like he's he's it. And it's and it's funny because obviously he popularized that. We know we talked about you know Blood and Black Lace setting you know the foundations for it for what would come later. But it's funny to see like he's still kind of championing the genre that he popularized. It's interesting. Yeah, and I mean, it's, you know, you look at the 70s guys and 80s guys and you're like, they've all either retired or died. And it's like, he's, once he's, yeah, it's like, that's why I'm like desperate for it to be good. I was like, just one more and it'll be a nice closeout of that era. Him and and Woody Allen. Him and and Woody Allen are still making movies. Ah, yeah, I forgot Woody Allen still makes movies. I was just going to look up how old Argento is. He's 81, 82 this year, so hopefully hopefully he'll have a good swan song. Um, It'd be nice. I mean, because even like, you know, Romero just kind of got his swan song 
five years after he passed where, you yeah, know, yeah. he finally had that movie released. And yeah. So, <laughs> you know, late, late career Kurosawa put out that movie called dreams. Mm. Um, I wonder if Argento would ever make a movie called Argento's dreams. <laughs> I, think I would be for I it. Wouldn't want, it. I wouldn't want to see what the fuck he dreams. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think he saw it for 20 years. Yeah, yeah it exactly. Would, it would be depraved. <laughs> so, like always, we're ending this podcast with any other business, just a part where we like to um, talk about a film we've seen recently, give it a shout out. Obviously, it doesn't have to be part of the Criterion channel. You know, it doesn't even have to be particularly good. You know, just something that we saw, we liked, and we think, let's give this a quick shout out. Um, I'll, I'll just get mine out of the way first. I'm going to stick with the Giallo team of this episode. I'm going to talk about a Giallo that I watched last week. Uh, or was it earlier this week? I don't remember. I, I watched it very recently. Um, and it was called The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. That's a proper Giallo title. Yeah. Blood and Black Lace and, and Deep Red are tame um, compared to The Red Queen <laughs> Kills Seven Times. Uh, it came out before Deep Red. It's from 1972. So it's from the... Uh, the original sort of craze after Bird of the Crystal Plumage. And it's a super, super interesting film. Uh, Arrow put out a, a copy of it and it's, it's streaming on the Arrow players where I watched it. Um, really amazing film. Um, you know, honestly, like sort of thinking about it afterwards, it might be like my favorite Jallo of all of them. Um, what, what, what have you done with Solange or what have you done to Solange might, might run it close, but um yeah, the Red Queen kills seven times is a really interesting film. It's a very manic film. It's a very, and what I mean by that is it's very much a film of two distinct styles that jump back and forth. There's no like part one and part two or anything like that. It very much jumps between these two very distinct aesthetics. Um, so the film, the brunt of the film, sort of takes place at this castle. It's set in Germany. It takes place at this sort of old style castle where this curse about the Red Queen who kills seven victims and the seventh victim is always their sister. Um, so a lot of it takes place in this castle, but then also a good chunk of the film just takes place in the, in the city that the castle is based in. Um, so when it's everything set in the castle, everything's very gothic and gloomy, very hammer style, really, really interesting, almost even sort of like Roger Corman-esque yeah. with his Edgar Allan Poe films. And then you go to the city scenes and it's very modern. It's very, very sort of cut off. Um, a lot of, again, I'm, I'm going to talk about Antonioni because I, I, it felt kind of like, have you guys seen Blow Up? Blow up? No. Not Blow Up, Blow Out. Have you seen Blow Out? Uh-uh. All right, Blow Out is a really good film by Antonioni. I think it was, it was pretty sure it was his first English, lang- English language film and coincidentally stars David Hemmings. Um, from Deep Red, he was also the main character in Blow and Blow Out. No, Blow Up. Is it Blow Up or Blow Out? Which is the Brian De Palma one? Blow Out is the Brian De Palma because okay. Blow Out's what you hear, and Blow Up is the like Blow thing. Up. He blows up the picture. Okay, because I was thinking of he blew up the tire, but that makes more sense. Yeah. Uh, so Blow Up is very, <laughs> very sort of striking film, um, and kind of keeps you at arm's length if that makes sense. Um, and I feel like the Red Queen Kills Seven Times does that a lot as well in, in, its, more, in its more sort of city settings. So it's a really good film. It's a, unlike the other Jalos we've talked about today, the story is super strong, has a really cool story, really cool plot. The characters are largely fleshed out. Uh, the, main, the main character, I have a crush on that actress. Uh, she's awesome. Um, 
yeah, it's just a really, really good film. I'd never heard of the filmmaker Emilio Miraglia. Um, he didn't really make anything more than this except for a film prior, which kind of like Birds of the Crystal Plumage and Deep Red, there's kind of like a similarity between them. Um, Chris, you mentioned it earlier, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Um, the reason why, you know, just kind of, yeah, great title. Uh, the re- in The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, they suspect that the murderer is called Eveline and that she also comes out of her grave. So you can see that there's sort of a similarity there, you know, between the two films. But yeah, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, on the Arrow Player, um, uh, is definitely in Ireland. Is it on the Arrow Player in the US? I'm not sure. Um, I but it Arrow- was when we were checking... I was checking earlier. Okay. But yeah, if, if you get a chance to watch it, it's a really, really cool uh, Jalo film. Like I said, it's probably my favorite of the genre because there's actually, there's actually a story to go on and the kills are also super cool as well. So yeah, that's, that's mine. That's mine. Yeah, anyway. it's on there. Nice. So yeah, if you're in the US or you're in Ireland like me or in the UK, uh, if you want to like, you know, kill 90, 90 odd minutes, and watch a cool film that's lots of really nice visuals and a good story um yeah the red queen kills seven times check it out good use of the word kill <laughs> um oh i'm happy to go next um uh so i guess sticking in the horror genre at least um there is a movie that came out of uruguay two years ago maybe a year ago i can't tell different websites have a different release date for it but it's called the last matinee and it's about this urban legend uh i think it it's a little hard to tell i even watched this special feature about the making of the movie and it kind of gets into like the folklore a little bit around this this hooded like cloaked uh gentleman who walked into a movie theater in 1993 in montevideo and just killed a bunch of people and like and they and uh, that so it's like about that murder. I'm pretty sure it was real. It's it's really hard to tell um, the way they did it. Like it it could also be kind of like um, uh, not a mockumentary, but that that style where it's like so close to reality, but it's you know it's fiction. Um, anyways, the movie itself is all, there's zero backstory. We don't learn anything about who the killer is. We don't learn anything about the motives of anybody. It's just killer walks into a theater, shit goes down, people start dying and people start defending themselves against this killer. And it's enough. Like the movie's awesome. It's the only thing I'll say is like kind of warning if you're triggered by gore, cause there's like a lot of gore in the movie. Like they did not pull any punches. Like there's one scene where he has to cut his eyeball out and it like extends as he like pulls it out of his head and like cuts the ocular nerve. Um, Like it's a great horror movie. (laughs) It's gruesome. And uh, Zach, I was thinking of you when I was watching this, like I I feel like I'd love to talk to you about it when you get a chance to see it. Um, It's just on. Hmm. What's it on? Is there anything it's streaming on? You said. Maybe it's on. uh, It's it's from dark star pictures. The one of the vinegar syndrome partner labels. Okay. According to Wikipedia, it's on video on demand, so I'm sure you could find it somewhere. I'm, I'm sure. sure it's streaming somewhere. Yeah, um, it's just a throwback to the slasher movie, and like 
it's within that genre it's very gory so it's a fun fun watch um it sounds weird to say but very it's it's the way they did the kills is kind of unique and they use sound effects really well so you like really kind of feel them and it's just like like you know you actually do kind of like shudder or kind of like ugh, you know every time it happens which is uh it's hard to it's hard to always get that reaction so yeah That's i'll, I'll check it out here soon it's been on my list for a bit so probably time to check it out yeah what about you what have you seen well you know with all this murder and sex and sex maniacs i think we need a little bit of good christian film in here and i want to talk about the magnificent film i watched yesterday called old fashioned okay. um it is not good not at all um from what i can understand about it it was made around the time 50 shades of gray was getting a lot of popularity so it was like this idea that men should be chivalrous but what it actually comes out to is um basically the main character the movie would be more interesting honestly if he was a serial killer because he <laughs> he has no personality he's not charming but he's like a 45 year old guy who's like renting out the the above area of his shop like he's an antique maker that's called old fashioned and take a shot for the title of the movie being said and when he allows tenant to come in she comes into she's like 30 so she's like 15 years younger than he is um and she came because she had her boyfriend broke her hand because she wore the wrong color of nail polish something that's i'm gonna guess that is just a weird thing to happen so she moves out here, and when she goes into the apartment to see his apartment that he owns, he won't go in there because it's this idea <laughs> that he promises he'll never be alone with a woman unless it's his wife. Uh... And it's like, no, no, that is what a rapist says. <laughs> like, this is not charming. And that's what it, that's how the whole movie comes off. It's terrible, it's completely awful, and it's so enjoyable to watch and how cringy it is. So I will recommend it. It's on Peacock. If you really want some bad, like pure flicks films, that's that's one to go with. Hard pass, <laughs> hard pass. And just so in case you're interested, the last matinee is streaming on Shutter and the Arrow Player. Sweet. Oh, perfect. So I just looked it up, and that is for the US. I changed my just watch location. Just look that up, just for you. And, and if anybody's wondering why I picked this, you can blame Letterbox because I couldn't look up what I had watched this week, and that was the last thing I watched. <laughs> <laughs> we're forced into talking about that film <laughs> I was sitting here looking on my shelf like about watched anything on here that I can talk about I was like I don't see anything so